Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We are uh, continuing in a series, and we'll talk about that series in just a moment. Uh, But one of the things that uh, always intrigues me when I read the Gospels, when I watch the Apostles in particular in the Gospels, is that they were consistently surprised and even sometimes put off by the way that Jesus would have these oversized expectations about what they were able to do. I mean, one of the things that seems to consistently like floor them is his oversized assumption about their capabilities and their abilities. Jesus asks them to do incredible things. Jesus talks to them about doing things that are beyond what they think is possible. And each time he expects them to do it. As I read, sometimes I think about being put in that place. And when he's asking to do, we're going to talk about a couple of those today from one little section of Scripture. But when he's asking them to do things, sending them out, telling them to do this, I can just imagine in their minds, they're like, what? Me? Us? Have you seen us? Do you know us? Always, one of the things I love to do with my boys when they were growing up was coach. And um, Kevin Stillman and I have coached many basketball teams with our sons on them over the years. And some years they've been really good. And some years they have not. The years that they're really good, it's because of the coaching. And the years that they're not, it's because of the coaching, right? I remember one year in particular, it was like our first time to ever coach together. And it was just one of those moments when we had a, I think our our boys were like kindergarten, first grade. They were small. Even Luke at that time was small, all right? He was big for his age, but small. And we were playing... And uh, we we had not um, we had not won a game that year, and it was like the seventh or eighth game. And we were playing a team. We were down here in our gym. It was with the city league. We were playing a team that was made up of the brothers of one of the top AAU teams in the region, and they had the genes. They had not lost had not been close to losing at any moment during the year. And I remember looking at our ragtag group, and you want to give that inspirational speech, right? The go win one for the Gipper kind of speech. And they look at you and say, who's the Gipper, right? Like, what does that mean, right? That, that Notre Dame should have tried that yesterday. They might have won. But they, they... You want to give them that speech, and yet you look at them and you're like, it's not going to matter, really. Right? Now, I wouldn't tell that then to their face. I'm telling you all publicly that. But this was many years ago, and we did not win that game. And I'm sure sometimes the apostles, the disciples felt like that group of kids that hadn't won a game all year, like, are you seeing who we are here? And you're asking us to do What? Jesus knew he had a short time to prepare them. He only ministered for three to three and a half years. It was a short 
runway to get them prepared for what was to come. And when you think about what he had in mind for what was to come, when you think about the picture in his mind of what was going to happen after, of what he knew was coming for them and through them, both against them and the forces of persecution and the enemy coming after them, and through them that a worldwide movement to understand how much God loves people was in motion through these guys, and he had three to three and a half years to instill all of that in He didn't have time to do kindergarten for six years. It was, we got to step up to some master's level classes along the way. Because he knew that the end goal were these guys taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. I mean, in John chapter 14, I am sure in one of those, what are you talking about moments with the apostles and Jesus he looks at them in John fourteen twelve, and he says, Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And that's like, what? And he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Now, we don't have time to delve into all of that means, but if you just understand it at face value, Jesus means what he says here. And what he says is that you, you, these disciples, these apostles, you're going to do more than I do. You're going to do what I did and more. And they had to look at him and go, what? We've seen what you've done. There's no way we can do that. And yet he had this confidence in them. You see, he was instilling in this this understanding that following him is the ultimate goal of our lives. And it will lead us to places where we are uncomfortable and yet we trust in him to see us through. And as we do, it grows our faith in him. Even in their calling, Jesus calling them was a very simple call that he would walk up. And you know this, right? That the simplest call he gave in Scripture, which he gave to the disciples, was simply this, follow me. It's interesting because it's not believe in me. It's not think about what I say and trust it. He is saying for them to follow him. It is a personal relationship and intimate relationship, a relationship between an individual who is leading and one who is following. And in their day and in their language, it basically was saying, become my disciple. That's a word we use a lot. But discipleship today, a lot of times, means just gathering all the knowledge that you can. Discipleship in the first century was following, was enacting the things that your teacher was doing, was watching their life and saying, I want to imitate that life. I want to be like him. I want to do what he's doing. I'm going to act and think and live and talk like he is. I want to follow him. And so Jesus' call to them was not to give mental assent to a certain set of beliefs. It was to imitate the life of Christ. And so all along the way, he would challenge them. He would send them out. He would tell them to do things that they thought were out of their league. And sometimes they failed. They would come back and say, Jesus, we tried and nothing happened. And Jesus would say, oh, we're working on it. 
It is happening. It is moving in you. Perhaps one of the most famous examples of Jesus asking the disciples to do something seemingly impossible that we know so well we become numb to it is a story found in all four Gospels. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to read it out of Matthew's version. And in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus has been teaching all day. Man, wouldn't that be great to have on video somewhere? Just all day, seminar with Jesus. He's teaching. He's engaging the crowds. He's having conversations with them. And it gets toward evening, and the disciples look at him and say, Hey, um, we're kind of in the middle of nowhere here, Jesus, and uh, it's late, and uh, we're really hungry. We'd like to have... Well, okay, we can't say that to him. Hey, Jesus, why don't you let these people go get some food somewhere? When I was in um, when I was in seminary, we took a newly and nearly married class. Susan and I got married um, July 25th. We were in the class uh, the first week of August. That's newly married, right? Um, it was a class that they taught for seminary students moving to Fort Worth, um, and that was the idea. There were non-seminary students in it, but mostly it was seminary students, and it was a great class, and we loved it. But one of the things I will always remember is um, our professor, it was a professor at the school that taught it. Our teacher was a guy named Scott Floyd. And Scott told this story one time about communication between men and women. And he said, um, he said, sometimes you have to learn to read between the lines. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? And he said, the other day we were driving down the road and my wife said to me, are you thirsty? And I said, I'm good, thanks, and kept driving. He said about 10 minutes later, she said, are you sure you're not thirsty? No, I'm good. I appreciate you worried about me, and he kept driving. Now, what was she really saying? I'm thirsty, right? I don't know, you know, guys are hunter-gatherers. We'll just say, hey, I'm thirsty. I'm going to get something, but there was there. The disciples here are doing that. Don't you think these people, like they're hungry probably, Jesus, right? Send the crowds away. Let them go back into the villages and get some food for themselves. We, you know, there's, there's no need for us to... We, you've, 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 done, you've done great today, Jesus. Awesome job. Great job, Jesus. Hey, I think it's time for dinner break. Next verse says this. Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. How many people were there? Y'all, y'all know this story, right? How many people were there? Well, at least 5,000. That's a rough estimate. They, they didn't do the counter kind of thing. That's a rough estimate there. 5,000 plus women and children. So a few thousand, right? And he looks at him and says, Hey, y'all take care of that. Y- y'all go feed them. And I can imagine one of the disciples going, There he goes again. Like, what? Like, that's not what's going to happen. We'll get back to that. In just a moment, that story. See, we're in the midst of a series called The Bonsai Way. And the idea behind The Bonsai Way is that God is in the process of changing us, of transforming us, 
of morphing us into the people that we're called to be. In fact, in the Gospels, oftentimes when it talks about being transformed into what God calls us to be, it means metamorphosizing. It is changing. It is literally the picture in Scripture is the picture of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. That God is transforming us into new creatures, into the things, the people, the the creatures, the created that He sees in us. He is growing us, transforming us, morphing us into that. And so we've talked about that over the last few weeks, about how God wants to grow us into something, that He's got this image in mind, that He's got this picture in mind. When I mentioned earlier that Jesus had this image in His mind, this understanding of what was coming for these people, and they had to be prepared for it, they had to be ready for it, they had to be, they had to be engaged in what was coming, He knew what they needed to be, and so He used incidences and teaching all along the way to prepare them for that moment. The same is true for you and I. By the way, it's an interesting kind of uh, connection as well. I don't know if you know this or not, but bonsai literally means, um, the idea is behind a bonsai tree is that it is a miniature tree. A little tree. You may know what the word Christian means in its essence means little Christ. And ultimately what God is turning us into is a picture, an image, a follower of Jesus that looks like, acts like, talks like Jesus. That goes back to that concept of follow me. And what we know is that God is most honored by us in our living out an active faith. And what God is transforming us into are vibrant, active people. And there are ways that He prunes us and waters us and gives us the nutrients we need in order for us to grow into what He's called us to be. And over the last few weeks, we've talked about the applied Word of God in our lives. We've talked about providential relationships that God brings along. We've talked about spiritual disciplines happening. We did that last week of, of morning time, of doing things with the Lord on a regular basis. And today we're going to talk about personal ministry. And here's the reality, and this is the point that's on the screen, is the point for the whole message. This is the point of the message. This is the purpose of the message. This is what we're here to talk about. It is that pushing through our doubts and inadequacy in order to say yes to God and serving others grows our faith. Pushing through our doubts and inadequacies in order to say yes to God and serving others grows our faith. And so when I hear people sometimes give their story or when I hear people ask or talk about, hey, what led you to the place where you're passionately devoted following Jesus, that your life has been transformed by Jesus. We've talked about over the weeks, a lot of times there are people that have come into their lives, a providential relationship that has helped them. It's a new understanding of prayer or reading the Bible or giving or attending church. It's a new understanding of living out what God has called us to do. But another aspect of that that almost always happens is that they say something like this. Well, 
I felt like I should do something. And even though I was nervous, and even though I was in over my head, I thought, and even though I did not feel qualified, and I felt inadequate, and really, although I didn't have the time to spare on it, I decided to say yes, and I served in this ministry, or I went on this mission trip, or I went downtown to this place, or I started to work in this area. And as a result, I saw God move in my life, and it changed me forever. I was nervous about it. I didn't, I didn't really understand if I was going to be able to do it. I thought, there's no way I'm equipped for that. And yet, I said yes, and God changed me. God grew me in my faith. God used it in my life to shape me. My own personal experience is that way multiple times again and again and again from very early on in my christian walk after my seventh grade year a group of us went to centrifuge in north carolina and uh, originally we weren't supposed to go to centrifuge we were too young but we had such a large group they took a group of just seventh graders um, i had been recently diagnosed with type 1 insulin dependent diabetes i was taking shots Uh, two to three times a day. I was on a very restricted diet and I had not left and been away from my mom and dad who were my primary caretakers on any kind of trip before then. Mom and dad were nervous and I was nervous. I never told anybody I was nervous, but I was nervous. And I decided to go anyways and that week radically changed my life. And as best as I could, as a seventh grader, I understood I was supposed to be there, and I went. And God radically changed my life. First time I ever went to Brazil, I didn't want to go. Uh, It was something that was completely out of my comfort zone. It was something that I had never done anything like that. I'd done mission trips in Michigan, and I'd done mission trips in and around Dyersburg, but never gone overseas, never flown that long on a plane. And I am forever thankful to the Lord that he gave me the courage to say yes. One of the things I love about that trip or any trip, any kind of service opportunity, something not as grand maybe in the global sense of what you think, but something as simple as serving in a room at the end that happens here during the winter or serving in outreach ministry or going and telling someone about something or just serving in a place that is difficult to serve. What I love about those opportunities is hearing people that said, I didn't really want to do it or I didn't know if I would be able to handle it, but God showed up. Man, it was so rewarding. Y'all have heard this, right? When we do our share service at the end of the summer, when we talk about mission trips, almost always somebody comes up and says, I got way more out of the trip than I gave. Because God, when we push through our doubts and our inadequacies in order to say yes to God and serving others, it grows our faith. Why? Because we experience God's faithfulness and provision and we understand His goodness in the midst of it. The greatness of who He is. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to look at this whole story. We're going to just stop and pause at a couple of points. And then we're going to look at how, what this means for us. 
Matthew 14, starting in verse 13. When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by a boat to a remote place to be alone. This particular translation of the of our Bible, the one that we read out of, the Christian Standard Bible, assumes you've read what came before that. So it just says when Jesus heard about it. But the reality is when we're just jumping in kind of here, we need to know what it is in this context. And so Jesus obviously hears some news that causes him to pull away to go to a remote place to be alone. In fact, when you read that word in the original language, it says that he withdrew to a solitary place, a very remote place. He wanted to get away from the crowds. So what did he hear? Well, he heard about his relative, John the Baptist. Y'all remember John the Baptist, right? Locust eating, wild hair, um, animal skin wearing, prophet of God. And John the Baptist had made the ruler of that area, the governor of that area, Herod Antipas, very mad. Now, um, you have to understand, Herod Antipas is not Herod the Great that killed all the babies when Jesus was born. It is his son, but he was just as ruthless and as difficult of a man as his dad. And what happened in Herod Antipas' life is that he fell in love with his brother's sister. Oh, excuse me. That would be his sister. His brother's, it's very confusing. It's very days of our lives. His brother's wife makes a difference, right? So he fell in love with his brother Philip's wife. And so he just decided as the governor of the area, as the ruler of that area, that he would marry his brother's wife. It didn't matter about his brother. And so she divorced his, her, his brother, and married him. And so now Herod Antipas is married to, beautiful name for a woman, Herodias. Um, Herod Antipas, Herodias, Philip's wife, now Herod's wife. And John the Baptist realized that this probably wasn't how the governor of the Jewish people should act. And so John began walking through the streets proclaiming that Herod Antipas was a sinner in the hands of an angry God. And proclaiming to everyone to hear what had happened. Herodias really didn't like this. She didn't like her name being spread all over town. And so she convinced her husband to have John the Baptist arrested and put in jail. Later on, Herodias then asked her daughter, the stepdaughter of Herod, to entertain Herod and his friends. And she did in a very provocative way, so much so that Herod says to her, that was an awesome dance. You can have whatever you want. And she says, give me a minute. She goes back to her mom. He was expecting she wanted a couple of chariots and some money, and maybe that'd be good and she could go. And she comes back and says, after consulting with her mom, I want the head of John the Baptist cut off and put on a platter for us here. And so that's what Herod did. And in the verses right before, when Jesus heard about it, what Jesus heard about it said was John the Baptist had been beheaded and his disciples came and told Jesus about it. So when it says Jesus wanted to get away, this wasn't like, I'm just tired today, guys. Let me get away. This was, I've had a death, a horrific death of a close friend, a relative, and Jesus' hype man. 
the one that literally went before and said, the one is coming. It's not me. He's coming. And when Jesus was baptized, this is who I've been talking about, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus is trying to get away. And at this point in his ministry, Jesus is so popular that the crowds figure out how to find him. And they followed him. He probably went out into the water and they just kept walking and somebody's like, still see him, still there, still there. We've got him, we've got him, we're tracking him, we've got him. It says they followed him from all the towns. When he went ashore, trying to get away, trying to get to a solitary place, trying to get to where he wouldn't be around, he saw a large crowd, had compassion on them, and healed their sick. This is an aside. This isn't part of the message really today. But you want to talk about the love and compassion of Jesus and what he had for people after hearing what could possibly have been the worst news he could have imagined. He walks on shore and he spends his day with people healing them. Teaching all day. Healing their sick again and again and again. In verse 15, when evening came, the disciples approached him. Now, let me also say that I believe that in this process... There were some of the disciples that were trying to look out for Jesus' health and well-being in this as well. Because they come to him and they say, Hey, Jesus, man, it's probably, why don't you send these people away? I think behind that partially is, Hey, man, you need some time. You've got to process some stuff. Why don't you send them away? We'll just spend a nice quiet night. It'll be great. Why don't you send them away? And as we read, Jesus looks and says, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. By the way, in John's account of this gospel, it tells us that he did this to test them, that he already knew what he was going to do. Verse 17, we find this from the fact that in other accounts that Andrew had a little boy there, or not his boy, but had a boy there that had just a couple of things to eat. Verse 17, it says, We only have five loaves and two fish here, they said. And verse 18 is one of the most impactful verses if we'll let it to be in all of Scripture. Because Jesus basically looks at the meager rations that they have. Looks at the inadequacies of what is before them and basically just says, bring them here to me. Jesus looks over what's there, looks at the scene, and he's trying to teach these disciples something. He's trying to teach them about depending upon him. He's trying to teach them about being used by God. He's trying to teach them that they are going to be the ones that are going to carry on the ministry. He's trying to show them that they can do more than they can even ask or imagine, not because of anything good in them, but because of the God they serve. He's trying to teach them all that they need to learn. And in the midst of that, he says, whatever you've got, bring it to me. And so they do. That's like a lunch for a little boy. And most of you grew up in church, you know this story. If you didn't grow up in church, you probably know this story. Verse 19, he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd. 
Come back to that in a minute. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now those who were, who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. One of the things that I think is absolutely remarkable in this passage of Scripture is that it says that he blessed the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And the disciples are the ones that gave it to the crowd. Now, I don't want to get real allegorical here. I don't want to do too much symbolism. I don't want to be your high school English teacher that finds symbolism there that isn't there. Okay? Anybody ever have one of those teachers? But it just seems very similar to what's going to happen in a few more chapters when Jesus is going to take some bread. He's going to look up to heaven. He's going to bless it. He's going to break it, and he's going to give it to them. His body broken for them. And the lesson that he's showing here is, that same lesson that he will teach later, is that what I am doing here is setting the stage for the ministry that you're going to do. I am fulfilling all that needs to be fulfilled, and then you will be the ones that take my bread to the nations. And he teaches that to them here. I told you to feed them. In the end, who fed them? Who gave them the food? The disciples did because Jesus had equipped them and empowered them to do it. The lesson for us is the same. God wants to use you, yes you, to do amazing things for the glory of God and the spread of the kingdom. We have to push through our inadequacy and our doubts and say yes to God and trust Him. Now let me just say real quickly, it must be something that is a part of what God intends to do in the world. This is not where you and I can come up with a good idea, lift it up to God and say, now God, bless what I'm about to do and take care of it. This is a calling of God on your life. But there are certain things in life that we know we are called to do. We are called to share the gospel with our neighbors and friends and people in our community. We are called to serve the poor and those that have needs in our lives that we can help take care of. We are called to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ through our love of our fellow humanity, of our love of one another, that we are to be demonstrators of God's love in and around the relationships we have here. How that plays out in your life individually may be different than how it plays out in mine, but the point is God is calling you to make a difference And he wants you to do things that you never imagined that you could do through his power for his glory. And what we have to say yes to is doing what we can with what God has given us. What you need to be able to say to the Lord in the midst of this is, I'll do what I can do. That's all I can do, Lord, but I'll do what I can do. I'll trust you and I'll follow you. And then we will trust God to do what only He can do. I do what I can do, and then we trust God to do what only He can do. And when we get on the other side of it, our lives are transformed by Him. 
By the way, something happens immediately after this story that further illustrates this point of God stretching them to do things that they could not do on their own in order to show them that they can trust in Him. You, you can look in your Bibles if you've got them open. What's the next story right after this? Walking on water. When Jesus comes to them that night, He sends them in the boat because they're worn out. As you can imagine, they have served over 5,000 people. They have been served waitressing or waitering. I guess they'd be waitering. Waitering. Is that what you call it? Waiting. That's better. Waiting on 5,000 people, giving them food, giving them fish, passing it out, doing all that. They are worn out. Jesus says, I got this, guys. Y'all go and get on the boats. I'll come find you later. How's he going? I don't know. Let's just go. And they get away, and Jesus comes walking out on the boat. You remember out towards the boat. You remember he gets almost out there, and he looks up, and Peter's in the boat, and he is. they're all freaked out because it's a ghost. Remember, they say, it's, it's a ghost. That's what they start yelling, and Jesus says, it's not a ghost, it's me. And Peter says, okay, okay. If it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come on. Again, the disciples in the boat that weren't Peter, uh, affectionately called by some the boat potatoes, they were there just sitting there. As they see that, they're probably going, are you kidding? And Peter's like, I don't know. We just said 5,000 people with a couple of fish and some loaves of bread. Why not? And he jumps out and he starts to walk, right? And he gets towards Jesus, he falls, Jesus picks him up. But do you remember what happens when he gets back in the boat? When we push through in our inadequacies, when we push through our doubts, when we say yes to God and trust Him to do what only He can do, God grows our faith and our dependence and our allegiance to Him. It says when He got back in the boat and everybody was saved, those that were in the boat did what? They worshipped Him. He is the Son of God. And here's what's going to happen in your life. God's going to use all of these things. He's going to use relationships to push you. He's going to use relationships to bring you. He's going to use relationships to encourage you. He's going to use His Word. He's going to use prayer time. He's going to use all of that. And in the midst of all of that, in practical teaching and prayer time and the Word of God and people coming along and walking alongside of you, when you're open to hearing and listening to God, that in the midst of all of that, God is going to then say to you, here's what I need you to do. And the first response you may have is, what? That, and when you push through your inadequacy, when you push through your doubt, and you say yes and trust Him, He will meet you in what He's called you to do. He will equip you to do it. And as He does that, He will grow you in your faith. I'll do what I can do and trust God to do what only He can Would you say that with me today? Just as a declaration of what we are going to do as a church and as individuals. Would you just say that with me? All right? I'll do what I can do and trust God to do what only He can do. Let me ask you one more question and then we're done. A little boy had loaves and fishes. Jesus said, bring it to me. You may think in your own mind, God, all I've got is, or, well, I could never do that because all I have, or all I'm able to do, or I don't have anything worthy of giving to the Lord. I don't have any special thing able to give. I don't have anything good to give. And God just says, 
Just bring it to me. Give it to me. Let me worry about that. But here's the last question I want to ask and then we're done. What do you need to bring to God today? What do you need to offer to Him and say, God, it's all I got. It's not much, but I'm willing to use it for Your glory. And I'll do what you, what I can do and trust You to do what You do. What do you need to bring to God today? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that in this moment we'll understand again how awesome you are and how you want to use us for your glory, for the sake of your kingdom. And Lord, how you want to do things through us that we can't ask or imagine now even because it's so great. And Lord, we just want to surrender to you today everything we have. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.